Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like to take it out to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And if you don't have one, there's one right in front of you. It's a blue one. And that's available for you if you'd like to take that and use it to follow along. For the last few weeks or so, we've been walking through a series that we've called Gospel Community. And as if you're new or you've missed a few weeks, let me just kind of catch us up to speed of where we are here. Uh, our goal in this series is to better understand of what it might look like to be the local family, the local church, gathered together for the glory of God and for His purposes. And I believe that that biblical gospel community is really the way, the primary way that God structures the local church to be. And so we kind of first set out just defining what gospel community might be. And again, we just find, define that as a local group of people gathered together, united around the hope of the gospel. And we see that laid out for us in the book of Acts as the early church gathered. We watched kind of flush itself out and flow out of that throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. And as we just looked at that gospel community, what it means to be God's people gathered together for His purposes and for His glory, I think there are key elements to it. And so last week we looked at uh, gospel teaching and prayer, that they're supposed to be part of gospel community. And that discipleship, right, becoming and growing as a follower of Jesus Christ is part of being gospel community. And it makes sense. You can't be part of uh, gospel discipleship unless you have gospel teaching and you have prayer to guide that process. I think these things are, are linked together. And as we continue just to work out the next few weeks, really all the way through the end of October, we're going to look at different pieces together. Again, this is not all-inclusive. It's just what I think the Scriptures point to and what the Spirit has guided me to is what I believe are, are key pieces of gospel community. And so furthering this out, we'll look at what it means to worship together. Like, why does this matter? Why is this important to us? Why is it good? Um, it, are we supposed to do this? Is this just tradition that we gather on a Sunday morning? That, that's next week. Right? What does it look like to live then, to live in light of the gospel? Are there ways that you and I are called to live that don't have anything to do with your personality, your gift mix, your location, or era of time that God's called you to live in? Or do some of these are subjective? And then today, um, we're going to look at man, something that's just going to drive right into your heart, I believe. And so we just sang that song. I don't know if you sang it or not, if you affirmed it by vocalizing it, but the words were, Jesus, take all of me. And so today we're going to talk about your home, your castle, your manse, right? Your man caves and your pottery sheds and all the other things that you have. Your house. What does it mean to be a gospel community and then how does that involve our home even? As we keep, keep talking about these things, we just pray that God gives wisdom and clarity and helps whatever His Word says to bury deep in your heart and your mind, and mine as well. And whatever I say that's not fruitful to that end, I pray that you'd forget it, but that you would truly grab into God's Word this morning. Okay? If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13 specifically. This is God's Word. 
And it says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. And God, as we just endeavor in this process this morning to look into your word and understand what it means to be really your people united around your purposes, I pray that your spirit be here, that it would give wisdom, guidance, and clarity today. Our words would be from you in your name. Amen. In your Bible, this portion of Scripture, really verses 9 to the end of the chapter, verse 21, might have a heading. I'm curious what the heading of this passage in your Bible is. This is where like, I'm looking for your words back to me. So mine says, marks of the true Christian. Anybody have anything different? Love. Love, period. Okay. Probably no period, but just for love. Yeah. Love and action. Interesting. Okay. In different headings, different thematic focus potentially, but really the overarching theme. Right? Marks of a true Christian. Love, love in action. Our lives are meant to be different if we claim Christ. In other words, if someone's claiming and trusting in the gospel and Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then their lives ought to look different. Really, Paul is about to tell us that if you claim Christ, you're saying, right, current, current common vernacular, you're claiming to be a Christian. Again, how do I define a Christian? Someone who has trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior in the hope of the gospel for their salvation. That Lord and Savior are key there, church. The gospel is not just, I say at all time, your golden ticket into heaven one day. Right? That, that, that's the Savior part we love to hear about. But when the, we, we trust the gospel, we're saying, Jesus, come take my life, be Lord of it right now. In so how I raise my kids, how I love my wife, how do I go to work each day, and as a neighbor, is all back as worship to God. That's the Savior piece. And if we're trusting that he is our, our Lord and our Savior, then what Paul is about to tell us is this. Your life better have these things as part of it. See, Paul has just got done encouraging his readers to have their lives completely oriented around Jesus. He says, look, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Anybody know earlier in Romans 12? Your mind. So what does that tell me? That God actually gave you a brain. I believe it, whether what, I don't care what the person next to you would say about it. All right. But he gave you a brain and he wants you to, to use it. He wants you to think about what it means to follow him. He wants you to wrestle with it. He wants you to know that it will be hard sometimes. Right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? To use your brain to think about what it means to follow Jesus. To be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Right? These are things that Paul had just gotten done in these people too. And he says, look, I want you to even use your gifts, both spiritual and natural, for the good of those around you. Right, for the body, the followers of Jesus, use the gifts you have. Right, he just gets done saying all these things, and now he jumps into the portion that we have. Right, he's following this exhortation. 
He moves from encouraging the followers of Jesus to put on flesh now to the bones of the gospel. He's saying, look, if you claim me, then this better be part of your lives. So I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you don't read books very well and you don't remember what you read. Anybody? Can, am I alone by myself right now? Okay, thank you. All right. And so I can read books all day long, but if I'm looking to retain them, I need to underline or write or highlight. I need to interact with it somehow. And so if that's how you are, let me encourage you in your Bible to underline, to highlight, to bracket, or do something here so that you take notice of Romans chapter 12, verses 9, really probably to the end of the chapter, but even specifically 9 to 13. See, what we encounter here is an interesting set of characteristics and really expectations. Right? Though Jesus talks about love, right? You've heard that, right? God is love. When he was tested, when Jesus was tested, he said, look, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Some of the law. Give it to me. Love what? Before that, though, what? You better love God first. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he goes on and says to love one another as yourself. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus is moving out of that, right? Jesus always talked about that, a commitment to love, to love, to love. The, the, the apostles, the disciples, they write differently a lot of times. They write about faith and obedience. If you read through the Gospels and then into the New Testament, you'll see Jesus talked a lot about the thematic union of love to be part of our lives. The Gospels right, then flush out of that into the disciples' writing as they continue on forward through the New Testament, faith and obedience, faith and obedience, faith and obedience. What we encounter here in this passage is faith and obedience. See, it's written from the perspective of this, right? Let's see, I'm, I'm backwards here. Okay, so, so if, if you have faith, then be obedient. That's the progression right now. If you're claiming Christ, then be obedient, See, John 14, you don't have to turn there, just listen, says this, 14, verse 15. If you love me, this is Jesus talking, you will keep my commandments. 2 John 6 says this, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. We begin now to see a correlation moving out of love is obedience. If you love me, if you say you love me, you, you're, you're claiming Jesus, you're calling yourself a Christian, then obey me. If you claim it, really what is he saying? Put up or shut up. Right? If you claim Christ, then, then let's see this in your life. See, I don't know where you are today, but if you're calling yourself a Christian, there are expectations on you. Like, you are called to live and to look and to be a certain way. We're not talking genetically. We're not talking your outward appearance. Okay? What we're talking about here is matters of the heart that then flow into action. This is what really Paul is getting at. In Romans, the logical progression of an authentic love for Christ implies that you are striving to walk according to his commands. My kids early on in life, are taught guidance and rules and structure. Right? And for the most part, they're accepting of those things because they what? They trust us. 
There's, there's a love basis here. And so when I, we taught them early on, right? Like, like we use a phrase called first-time obedience. And I know it sounds very countercultural. I get that. But what does that mean? When I say stop, stop. Not time number six or seven or eight when I say stop, but the first time we say stop. And it's, it starts with stupid stuff, right? Like stop hitting your brother. A phrase in our house, stop being a nudge. Right? A nudge is someone who just constantly asks the same grinding question over. Well, why not? Well, why not? Well, why not? All right? All right? And if you're quick to point the finger at somebody else, it's probably you that's guilty. Okay? All right? So, first, how obedience. Why does that matter on the little things? So that when I yell stop because they're not mentioned and they walk into a road, they've really been conditioned to stop. But what is all that based upon? A trust that I love them with a real authentic love. So that when I tell them stop, it's not just because I'm bored. Because I've got nothing better to do with my life. But because I, I have a good intention and a good purpose. See, Jesus, Jesus gives us commands. He gives us instructions because he has a good and better purpose for us. And despite our feelings, despite a, our culture, what they may try to tell us, the culture might try to say, a love for Christ manifests itself practically in obedience to the commands he gives us. And it shows itself in living for him. Not a choose your own adventure story, but an obedience to Christ. See, I think one of the greatest things that we're seeing in culture is this. It's just called uh, biblical deficiency. Meaning we don't know what this and so I can say, look, the Bible says, do right? the golden rule. Where is that in the Bible? Not. But you might think it is, because it sounds Bible-y. Right? But that's, that's biblical literacy. We, we don't read this anymore. How can we take commands of God to heart if we don't know what they say? So listen, if, if we're to live in obedience to commands of God, and, and you need to hear very clearly what I just said there. If we are to live in obedience to God, this is not me telling you, this is me right alongside of you. If we're to do those things laid out for us in Scripture, then we have to now wrestle with Romans 12. We have to wrestle with this. See, when it says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, and when scriptures say, and this is love, that you walk according to his commands, and we see a phrase that says, do this, let love be genuine. It's instruction being given. We ought to sit up right now. Like We ought to listen. We ought to be eager to understand what Paul's about to tell us so that we can better follow through. But why? Because that is the evidence of a life committed to Christ. Love and Christ and perseverance of the saints. It's evidence that your life's been changed by the gospel. So I'm going to encourage you, four years old, I think you might have the record right now. Does anybody, you don't have to tell me your age, was anybody older than Norman? He's going to be 85, I wondered. You'd be proud, I like that. Very proud, Doris. Nice. From four to Miss Doris. I would encourage you to pay attention because we're about to hear instruction. When Scripture gives instruction, it now means that you know it 
we're held accountable to it. Right? My boys, early in life, right, if they do something dumb, they throw a rock through a window. If they've never been told not to do that, they're, shh, they're acting in ignorance to some extent, right? They're just, they're kids. The minute they're told that was wrong, don't do that again, now they're responsible. And I'm not, I know it's weighty, but I'm, I'm, I'm just cautioning you. Because what we're about to hear will now be responsible to, to walk out in our lives. Listen again to some of the things that Paul laid out for us in Romans 12. Right? And here's the caveat. Paul wants the best for who he's writing to. The Roman believers, he wants them to grow and to thrive in Christ. And I believe he wants the same thing for us today if he was here. Right? He says this, let your love be genuine. Right? In, in other words, love that is sincere will be like this, what he's about to tell us. So if we claim to have sincere love for Christ, right? let your love be genuine, let it be sincere, then pay attention. If it's sincere love you have for Christ, then it should look like this. And now he starts his list. That we should hate what is evil. So that's evil, right? That, 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 that's injustice on mankind. You should hate that. When we believe that, that mankind is creating God's image, that means that we should care about the unborn child and we should care about the neglected aging citizen in our culture because all are made in God's image. All bear that marking. You don't age out of that. You carry that through. So when we hear injustice being done, like I read this article about this guy who was supposedly locked in a shed in England for 40 years. 40 years. And of course, there's disputing stories. He chose that life. He didn't cho- Either way, just reading that, we at least should get a little concerned that that type of life is going on let alone sex trafficking, pornography, and everything out that just seeks to exploit humanity. That's not even a word. I just made it up. It seeks to exploit people, humanity. Right? That's hating what is evil. That's, that, that's, that's evil. The, the average person right, who may just call themselves an, an agnostic would say, I agree, that's evil. The taking of a child from a home to put into a sex industry is evil. So what does Paul say about that? Look, hate it with a righteous hatred towards it. He goes on and says, look, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Be tenaciously attached to what all that is good as God defines it. He says, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves. He says, put on your spiritual passion in obedience to serving the Lord. Where did I see that? When it said, outdo one another and show in other words, look, be spiritually passionate about obediently serving God and, and oh, encourage others to do the same. Encourage each other to stay the course, to be joyful in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Look, at the very baseline, be joyful in hope of what? If you're in Christ, of a future glory. Be patient in tribulation, meaning endure. Press ahead. Don't do this in life and give up. Press on. And be constant in prayer. What should you pray about? That the first two things will come to pass. That our security and our hope is firm and that we would be enduring tribulation. 
See, Paul wants all these things to be part of our lives. To love one another, do one another in showing honor, to not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit and to serve the Lord. That is expected for the life of the follower of Jesus. And so we could stop right now and just ask the question, how are you doing? How are you doing? If you're claiming Christ, how are you doing at this? Under the umbrella even of gospel community, how are we doing, church? How are we doing at loving one another with brotherly affection? How are we doing with showing doing one another and showing honor? How are we at, at encouraging each other, at being zealful for the Lord? I'm making up words left and right, zealous for the Lord. Oh my goodness. How are we doing? Today is somewhat of a temperature gauge for us, individually and corporately. Because corporately, we are right, a result of what we're doing individually. We get to verse 13. Verse 13, it tells us, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Right? Again, here we see an action, we see a command associated with what? Genuine love. So if we're claiming Christ, we claim to have a genuine love to Him, let your love then inwardly roll outward to be genuine to other people and show to the needs of the saints. Press towards them in two practical ways. Right? One, enter into the needs of the fellow or follower of Christ. Enter into those things. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Certainly we could say, well, quickly that means, all right, material, food, clothing, housing, right? If we see a need for a follower of Christ, right, the saints, that's what this is, follower of Christ, contribute to it. Help meet those needs. But there are others, aren't there? Spiritual, mental, emotional. I think that Paul is talking about all these things. And I think his desire is this, that we would be a people, that any local gospel community would be a people that are connected well. And not just via email, right, that that kind of connects us all together, but that we would be relationally connected well. So well that two things would happen. Right? The first is this, that the family, the gospel community, would know of, hear of, and be told of needs that we would be watching for needs, and that we would seek to be honest and know their safety and comfort where needs are expressed. I believe that's one of our hopes. That we as individuals would also not be too prideful to communicate our needs and our need for help. See, I think too often the body of Christ function how it ought to because we treat gospel community as this convenient add-on. Right? It's added on to our lives. We'll press into it when we need it or remove ourselves when we feel like we don't. We base it on comfort, opinions, or even our pride and our arrogance of how much we want to take advantage and be part of it. But I believe that Paul is striving to remind us that 
that a life based on and operating in Christ is one that sees the need and benefit of gospel community. A gospel community is a place that when things are hard, right, when life is just difficult, you can be met despite your shame with a hug, with a listening ear. You can be welcomed by a community of imperfect people. Because none of us here have our act together. We're striving, hopefully. We're kind of endeavoring to have it together as more Christ would call us to be conformed to his likeness. But look, we're, we're just, we're messes. Some of us are messes who have been radically saved by the gospel and others I hope and pray that are, we're moving closer to Christ and that repentance and acceptance. See, gospel design Gospel community is designed to be what? Community. I think when it says contribute to the needs of the saints, look, what if the person didn't actually have to express their need, but we kind of walk with people so well that we're meeting the need before it's ever told to us? That's what I think Paul has in mind here. That we're so in tune, that we're walking life out, that we don't have to just hear, oh, so-and-so needs help financially. That man, that we're sensing that, we're seeing that, and we're, we're striving to meet the need by ourselves. Right? Not corporately always coming together, but just doing things on our own at times. And then there is time, a place for corporately coming together. Follow the needs. Enter into them. That's what I think Paul's trying to encourage us in. Contribute to the needs of the saints. But then he goes on and says this. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. And seek to show hospitality. What is hospitality? Right? Romans 12, 13, not that helpful actually. When it comes to a definition anyway. Right? It's not given us in terms of a specific word. But let's just... Let me give you another way to to phrase hospitality. A better understanding of this word would be this. Lover of strangers. A more descriptive, defining way to to walk through hospitality is. Lover of strangers. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show love to strangers. See, Paul is calling here for the follower of Jesus to open in their lives, and I believe their homes, to welcome in people that they may or may not know, that may or may not be like them. Right? There's a difference between tolerating somebody and inviting somebody in, isn't there? We can tolerate most people. We can tolerate because we know that we can eventually space ourselves from most people. We'll go home. I'll get my car. I'll drive away. But when we begin to invite people into our homes and then by doing so, inviting them into our lives, it changes. There's a sense of the context here that we could could potentially conclude that Paul is only talking about those followers of Christ, right? In that same sentence said, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It could be that you could say, so he's just talking about fellow believers of Jesus. And that seems pretty simple. If we worship together in a gospel community, sure, come hang out at my house. There's, there's not much in the line there. 
But I believe that Scripture points out numerous times in other places that hospitality is also to be oriented around those outside of the kingdom, those have yet to follow Christ. And it's evidenced in the lives of the New Testament writers. So why would we include hospitality into a characteristic of gospel community? I think it's helpful to think about this. Right? It's helpful to think, how do you define community? See, community is not something I don't believe that is f- just formatically created. Okay? Community is not something that's formulaic. Right? We, you may have grown up in an era where the, your community was your block, or your two blocks. Right? From best I understand, historically, Portsmouth had just kind of more... Um, just type of blocks, Italian block and different and so on and so on, neighborhoods. Right? We could say, well, yeah, because so community made sense, but that's my point. Your community was not derived out of simply location. Your community was derived out of a, a common threading factor. Right? Community comes through time. It comes through life. It comes through common ground. It comes through shared viewpoints, understood beliefs. These things built, build community, but don't get it wrong. Community must be cultivated. Community does not just sporadically happen. Around but community goes much beyond that. And I believe hardwired for it. See, if community is created through deeper things than just being in the same location, then it takes time. It takes a process. It takes an openness. It takes intentionality. It takes commitment. And this is what I believe is the benefit to hospitality and the reasons that Scripture calls us to it. In our current culture, at least the culture that I'm familiar most with, it seems that we've made the idea of hospitality into this grand event. What comes to your mind? I love to hear this. What comes to your mind when you think of yourself and hospitality? What comes to mind? You, you can offer out answers if you choose. And if, uh, okay, a meal and sharing a meal, okay? Cooking. Apparently we like to eat, okay. <laughs> what? Okay. Anything else? Inviting people. A smile, wow. Okay, having guests over. Yeah, I'm mapping my list together too. Meals, entertaining, but I went beyond that. I think for most of us, we would have added this too. Scheduled, and even the word grand came to mind. Right, meaning this, the house is clean, things are tidy, all the junk is put in the closet and the door is shut. Right, it's grand, Right? It's, it's abnormal. It's not common. See, where do we get this idea from that, that hospitality has to be this structured, this formality of things? Certainly not from Paul. See, Paul later on, he, oh, sorry, later on the writer of Hebrews also affirms what Paul said. Hebrews 13, 1 through 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
Right? You saw that, if you remember at all, from the, whole, the Old Testament, you see different individuals spending time with strangers to find out later on they're angels. But my point is this. When you entertain strangers, you often don't plan ahead for that. That's a sporadic event. That's something that takes place off the cuff. Right this morning, I went to the grocery store at 7.30-ish. Okay? Hoodie, sweatpants, grocery store, come back. And I see someone coming down the sidewalk that I, I recognize and know. Not that well. So I have two thoughts happening at the same time in my brain. Get in the house because I've got places to be. Or walk slower, unlock my door slower, and have a conversation. And you may think, well, that, that seems just being nice. Well, yeah, I think it is. But that, that's my point. I think so often when it comes to interacting with other people, we wrestle. Ah, it's not a good time. I've, I've got this place to be. I'm not prepared. What will they think of my home? What does this say about me? And we go on and on and on. But, but here, and again, in, in both Romans and later on Hebrews, there is an encouragement to love, to invite in, to welcome even those that you may not know of. Those that you may want to put the best first impression on, right? Because here's the reality, man. You spend time around my house just a little while, like you can get your own cup. It's in the cabinet. Help yourself. I'm not going to get it for you anymore, all right? Because you're just welcome. But the stranger comes in my home, right? Not only am I getting their cup, I'm also thinking, okay, like strangers don't just go upstairs to the third floor where the bedrooms are. Right? That wouldn't be normal. And there's other, it, it changes. But as best I can tell, Hebrews nor Romans says, look, because of that caution, don't invite them in. Look, this is all contextually, by the way, under a timeline when hotels and motels were not very common. Okay? Priceline did not exist. You didn't pre-book anything. Don't you find it fascinating that, that there was no room for the inn? For Mary and Joseph, why did they make a reservation? Because you couldn't. It wasn't common. It took a lot of effort and time to do that. So really, Paul's writing to the early church, and I think later on affirmed even to a greater extent in Hebrews, was because lodging was just hard. It was hard to find a place. So wait, hold on. That means it goes beyond have someone in your living room. He can say, look, give them a bed to sleep in. See, I fear that we've built up some kind of monumental, unrealistic expectation of what it means to be hospitable. And it could be our own doing, that, that, you, that you personally have kind of created this idea in your mind of, of everything that has to go just right to have somebody else into your home and effectively then inviting them into your lives. Or it could be that we've observed somebody who just has, has welcomed people in so well and their home is magnificent for, for just having people in and it always feels comfortable and warm. And so that bar has been created so high that you think, I can never hit that. So why do I even bother trying? Look, I, I've fallen into that thought process for sure. Right? That's, that's one of the things that Kim and I went back and forth. Like, isn't it weird to have someone in my house and then invite you upstairs to the second floor? Like, no one lives like that. And Kim just said, look, at some point you just have to get over it. It just is what it is. And she's right. Right? I mean, I can get in the same stumbling blocks as you can. Right? We decide our space doesn't work. What we talk about with people. I don't have time. Look, the reality is when it comes to being 
It's hospitable people are not short on excuses. But let's, let's return to what the Scriptures say. Let's see how they guide us with this. Seek to show hospitality. Love God, love others. Let brotherly love continue and do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Right? These things, right, they're not specific to first century believers, but they're true to us today. Look, here's my honest opinion. I believe that the example that we see in Acts chapter 2 of the early church coming together in homes, spending time together, praying together, singing songs of praise together, and then also going to worship together, i.e. local church, right? I believe that that is the dualistic primary reason for their growth and their impact. Hands down. That as they sought the Lord's guidance, the Spirit used them, they spent time together, and the number grows by the thousands. It's fascinating. See, these commands are not limited to, to, to time. Right? So let's go back again to what we first started with. If you love me, you will obey me. If we claim Christ, then there is a call to obedience to the scriptures, that we're called as followers of Jesus to show hospitality in response and obedience to Christ. Right? For many of us, we have a laundry list of that. I understand. Our to-do list, is a, our house is a wreck. It's not big enough. I don't have time. What does it look like? My furniture is outdated. And on and on and on. Listen, aren't those things I just listed just called life? Is that just life? We're called to be intentional. We're called to hospitality. Listen, not entertainment. So what I mean by that? Entertainment, in my opinion, that has the four-course meal. That's got a phenomenal appetizer. That's got a pristine house. That's not what, what Paul said. He said, look, entertain really well. He didn't say that. He says, hospitality. And I believe that calls us to see our homes as great places where love can flow out of and we can welcome people into. Where we can be intentional, spend time with people, both followers of Christ and those not yet following Christ. See, I believe hospitality looks like seeking God to give you wisdom on who you invite over and then actually following through with that. I think we should serve good food. I think we should have good drinks. I think we should enjoy each other. I, th- I think we should not be rude to people. Does that sound that hard? No. Love people wholeheartedly and honestly. Welcome them into your lives. And what's the best way to do that? To welcome them into your home. Why? Because they need to see what grace is like on display. They need to see your life, if you are in Christ, that Jesus is constantly changing you. That you are living and breathing because God alone gives you life and breath today. That he is working in your life as you try to figure out how to parent your kids, as you talk and interact with your spouse, as you don't talk about your neighbors because that would be gossip. They need to see Christ on display in your life. And what better way to do that than to have someone in your home? 
Look, community is not built solely upon time spent together, but on relationships being formed in that time. The call to gospel hospitality is within gospel community. It has an in and out effect. Meaning within gospel community exists hospitality people focused and oriented around their homes and their lives being a regular space where people come in and go out of constantly over and over. As one author I think convictingly puts it, he says this, if the church felt the priority of our brotherhood and sisterhood over and against our fleshly identities, we too would make hospitality a priority. I'll say it again. If the church felt the priority of our brotherhood and sisterhood over and against fleshly identities, we too would make hospitality a priority. And that's just in the context of the family of God. What does that mean? I like my own downtime, I'll be honest with you. But if I have an authentic love for my fellow brother and sister in Christ, and then, yes, for even the stranger then maybe I would put my own selfishness aside at times and open my home up and my life up to others. See, it could be the very hindrance to our hospitality, to the opening of our homes and our lives and welcoming people in is ourselves. It's just us, that we're the greatest hindrance. It could be that we actually are choosing to welcome in disobedience instead of choosing to be obedient, then in fact, we're saying yes to sin and no to the command that God gives us here. See, God calls us to have a love that's rooted and established in Him. And He calls us then to move out of that love towards other people. Right? This love ought to stir us by the Holy Spirit's guiding to invite people into our lives and into our homes into our opinions, into our concerns, our encouragements, and to let us let them have a seeking and looking and, and yearning to understand what's going on. Hospitality really does, church, it flows out of the gospel. And I'll finish with this. See, when we understand how much God loved us and cared for us when he lavishly sent his son on our behalf, right? When we understand that, when we wrestle with that, when we understand that scripture says that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember that, that while we were still enemies, Christ came, that we would be restored when we had nothing to give, God gave us everything. And to understand the gospel is deep. When we begin to understand the fullness of what God gave us, then we begin to see our responsibility to give to other people. Perhaps even saying, why don't you come over for a cup of coffee? And here's the kicker. You don't have an agenda. Come over and have some coffee. Not so you can complain about the other neighbor on the other side of the house. But so you can get to know somebody. He, when, when Christ draws us to himself, we understand the gospel. 
and the Spirit begins to work in our lives, then perhaps our heart and our attitude should be the same that God showed us. To love people, to invite them in, even when their bruises and their bangs are right in front of us to see. So the question then leaves us, you and me, how is God stirring you right now? I think too often we wait, I'm going to think about that for a while. Fine, that's good and and well to do. But how is God stirring you right now? Is there a name? Is there a night? Is there a family God has pressed on you over the course of just our time together this morning? Has he convicted you at all or convinced you at all that you need to open up your house and your home and your life to people? Really, that's happening right now for you. I would really encourage you, please respond in obedience. Respond to what God is calling you to, gospel hospitality. Invite people in, talk about life, and allow the conversation to be normal and God-honoring. And then, do it again. Invite them over again. And then, do it again. (laughs) And as God leads you, do it again. And the more you do it, just practically speaking, it becomes more natural, like anything else in life. Look, ultimately, if God is leading you, you must follow. Trusting that he's at work. calls us to be hospitality There's a great book, Kim's in the Middle of, by Rosario Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Pick it up. I don't care if you're not a reader. Okay, I get that. Pick it up. And, and begin to read and ask God, man, if you can trust me with this, this one-bedroom apartment or this grand home. He's entrusted you with that. He's provided you with that. Now, how is he calling you to use it for his glory? Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for wisdom and how we can be obedient to you to walk out your calling, to welcome people in, whether we know them to the greatest extent as lifelong friends or or just we only know their name, but to be hospitable to the body of Christ and to those around us so that your glory will be put on display. God, ultimately, that we would be obedient to you and that others may come to know Christ. In your name, amen.